Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to a very special IGN UK podcast. This is podcast 150, but that is not the reason why this is special, because not only joining me this week is Kez McDonald. Hello. Stuart Reed. Hello. But we also have Warren Spector with us. Hello. How are you doing, Warren? Doing great, thanks. Now, Warren, you are somewhat of a, uh, an icon in the gaming industry, uh, a development legend, I would say. Uh, sure. <laughs> I, I just like to think of myself as a guy who survived for 30 years, you know? Well, I, I, you've done more than survive, I would say. You've, you've had a string of pretty massive games, and we'll talk about your career a little bit later on. But um, obviously, Gamescom has just happened. You were at Gamescom. Yeah, sure was. What did you think of the show? Uh, overwhelming as ever. Uh, it's amazing. Just walls and walls of people and oceans of, of humanity. Uh, and uh, the, the industry is showing off as loudly as it can. It's pretty exciting. How does it, it compare to E3 for you? Well, it, it's like five times bigger, so uh, it, it's different in that sense. Uh, and, and it's open to the public, which gives it a whole different flavor. It, it's, it's very rare that developers get to talk to uh, the people actually playing their games. And the opportunity to do that is really cool uh, most of the time. Right. <laughs> Every once <laughs> yeah. in a while, you, know, you kind of wish some of those fans would go away. But for the most part, it's, uh, it's spectacular getting to meet the, the people playing. It is kind of a crazy show because obviously day one is, is purely uh, the, the business side of things. So it's relatively quiet. And then it opens up on the, uh, I think it's the Thursday, it's the first public day. Were you down in the, the public halls on, on the Thursday? Uh, not on Thursday, on Friday I right. actually got Ooh-ish. down there. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you say it's relatively quiet, and I guess relative is the important word yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> On the business days, it's it's only as big as E3, and yeah. so uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, like um, I, I was getting from uh, one stand to the next, and on the Wednesday, it took me probably like five minutes. On the Thursday, it took me nearer 25 minutes. It's just, I think it was a quarter of a million people this year. Crazy. Yeah, yeah I had to warn the, the, the guys who came with me. It was their first time at Gamescom, and I had right. to tell them, at, at some point, you're going to feel like a salmon swimming upstream to spawn, <laughs> and you know, everything's going to come to a complete halt, and just, just get ready for it. You know, take, take your Xanax or something. Because you're gonna, you know. <laughs> so you were obviously showing off uh, Epic Mickey 2. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was the kind of general reception from the guys that you were talking to? Like, You know, you, you never know how people are going to respond to your work until you actually get out there and talk to them, and, and luckily... Uh, the most common response, I'm, I'm not just saying this, I mean, the most common response was, hey, you really did address all the stuff that, that we wish you'd done in the first game, which is exactly what we hoped, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the camera system needed needed some work, and, and we've worked really hard on that, and people saw the, the results of that, and... Uh, you know, everybody talking was uh, was something that people wanted. All the characters uh, were silent in the first game. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they're all talking now, and... Uh, you know, for the for the the core gamers, we we really went back to that sort of choice and consequence thing. I mean, we cho- we did choice and consequence light in the first game, but in the the this game, I my, I guess couldn't do it again. So we had to do we had to go all the way. And there's there's some real depth to the the, the choices and consequences you experience. So, right. Yeah, people seem to really like it. 
on the subject of cameras, I was speaking to a developer who's doing a really cool looking 2D platformer at Gamescom. And I was like, it's really interesting, this renaissance in 2D platformers. He's like, do you know why it is? It's because everybody hates making cameras. It, you can know, put all that CPU into something else if you just make a 2D game. It's amazing. I, you know, Disney Epic Mickey, the first game was the first third person game I'd worked on since I think Ultima 7. Wow. I, I mean, which is like, before most people listening to this were probably even born. And <laughs> like, I had, I had no idea how hard a problem third-person camera was. And, and then to let people change the, the way the game feels based on how they're playing and change the environment dynamically so there might or might not be a platform in front of you or there might or might not be a wall behind you and between you and the camera. I mean, we just took this really hard problem and made it, like, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what we were thinking, you know? So did you get much time to kind of see anything else around Gamescom? You know, it was pretty much a, a quick run. I spent a couple of hours walking around and uh, saw lots of lines that prevented me from getting in to see the things I wanted to see. Crazy, <laughs> isn't it? That was about it, yeah. Like, um, um, I, certainly last year, I was chatting to one guy who was queuing for, I think it was Battlefield 3, and the queue was eight hours long. Yeah. So basically what he did was, as soon as the doors opened, ran to the front of the queue, uh, and then he was okay. He was within like an hour, but there's guys at the back who, that was going to be their entire day. It's like, man, you really want to see that game. Yeah, it's incredible. People come, teenagers come with entire groups of friends, don't they? With, you can yeah. see gaggles of like yeah, nine yeah, of them yeah. all queuing for one thing, and that's their day is, is queuing. And yeah. one of them will go off to get refreshments and come back with like sweets and beer. The other yeah. thing I told the guys who, who you know came for the first time was, you know, when the doors open on the exhibit halls, don't be anywhere near those doors because you'll get trampled. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. like a herd of elephants and stuff. It's crazy. But yeah, uh, one year we uh, we decided to set up a video and film the, the guys running in. And we only did it one year. So after that, so <laughs> people don't need to see that, and we don't need to be standing there. It's just there not worth go. it. There you go. Yeah, like the only thing I really got to see it was. Uh, you know Sony's Wonder Book thing. Ah, and right. Okay. That's that's kind of that's kind of an intriguing idea. You can see all sorts of possibilities with that. Alex but is a fan of that. I am. Yeah, because there's a lot of. Um, I, well, I think people don't really get it, for starters. But I've sat through three presentations of both the, the technology, but also the different books that they're working on. And you know, as a, a father with a two-year-old, it just seems like a brilliant idea to me. I'd love the idea of exploring books in a in a way that just i haven't been able to do uh, previously uh, obviously uh, the sesame street game from double fine came out i think it was last year um but and i've tried that but unfortunately the limitations of connect just it didn't really work as an experience to, for me but this looks you know kind of that and beyond uh, and the fact that you've got obviously jk rowling working on it and the bbc and disney you know that is a pretty good lineup yeah i, I i'm intrigued by just about anything book associated i mean i'm, a, I'm kind of a bookaholic too right. I, have, I have a library i have a building that is just my library you know back home and, and so I, i'm pretty much love books and anything that that gets kids reading and experiencing the turning of pages in a new way is a good thing yeah when i when i was i remember seeing the wonder book presentation at e3 which didn't get that good of a reception but i remember looking at it and thinking god when i was eight i would have thought this was the most awesome thing i'd yeah. ever seen in my life because i was a massive i was a well, geeky book kid the thing to the thing to remember is anytime there's something radically new and different i mean you're never going to figure out how to do it right the first time mm, right i mean yeah. if you get halfway there you're doing really well and so think about what it could be that's that's what i was watching the you know people playing it and thinking what where is this going to be in five years what yeah. could i do with this that'd be that'd be pretty neat you know? yeah because obviously at the moment it's very much pitched as a kind of a young audience but there's no reason why that couldn't develop into something that's more broad 
as you say, in five years' time. I think well, it's always going to be kids, though, isn't it? Like, the, the magic of, of... Do you think? No, you know, it's funny, because uh, one of the big goals for Disney Epic Mickey 2 was... was or, frankly, Disney Epic Mickey 1 was to make a game for everyone. I guess everybody can hear the air quotes there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I met with uh, with John Lasseter, uh, famed creator of Toy Story yeah. and, you know, Pixar stuff uh, that, that's obviously beyond belief. And, uh, you know, the, the first time I met him, uh, he, he was saying, uh, don't, don't think in terms of target audiences. You know, at, at Pixar, we make entertainment for everyone. And, and I had that moment. It was like a Spielberg moment where, where the, the camera's zooming in and dolling out at the same time <laughs> and the world is distorting all around me. And I said, wow, I mean, why can't a game aspire to that? And so yeah. in the first game, we, we did that. I mean, if you look at who played the game, and Disney's done a lot of research on, on that, we really did make a game that about half the players were over 18 and a little bit less than half the players were, were, were below 13, in fact. Right. And so that was one of the big driving forces behind, uh, hey, let's make it multiplayer so those kids and adults can play together. I think, I think you underestimate uh, adults. <laughs> you know? I think they'll, they'll really enjoy a more interactive uh, sort of experience moving forward. I could I- definitely see Wonderbook being something that people play together with kids. I'm just wondering how it could translate as like a... Maybe you could get horror novels on it. I, well, I, th- I think that's pretty, exactly that it. I think great. obviously what we've seen so far is a very, very small uh, idea of what its potential could be. Mm. You know? Well, still, even now, people think of games as being just for kids. But, you know, the, the average age of the people playing, playing my games topped 30. Wow, I mean... 12, 13 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it's just a really long-standing misconception there, isn't it? I think yeah. that the average video game has been over 30 for about, yeah, for about 15 years nearly, yeah. I think. It's crazy. Yeah. No, adult, adults will get it too, I think. Once yeah. people start giving them content that they find intriguing. Yeah, exactly. I would still definitely read Walking with Dinosaurs at age 24. <laughs> yeah. I'd be fine with that. That's cool. <laughs> How about an interactive version? I'd, I'd go for that. Yeah, yeah. it'd be eight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your game of the show, Keza? Um, I really liked, I thought Capcom had a really good show. And they've got a really strong lineup for the end of the year, I think. But they also announced Remember Me, which was yeah, it's um, basically it's a sort of sci-fi, uh, third-person sci-fi kind of action adventure thing. But it's about the subjective nature of memory. Ooh. So the uh, the the main character, I think it's called Nilin, um, but she essentially she she's got the ability to mess with people's memories. Like it's it's set in 2084, and everybody has these sort of brain ports, so you can trade memories. So instead of watching TV, people literally have the memory of the guy who I don't know scored the winning goal in the World Cup, like, and they can actually have that memory and buy it and trade it and, and experience it and things like that. So the the main character of this basically has has the ability to to do this with with people and, and scramble their memories or make them believe things happened that didn't happen, which puts a really interesting twist on on the story. Like we saw a thing where. Um, essentially she was trying to get this guy to commit suicide and the way she did it was by kind of entering his memory and then there was like a kind of diorama puzzle where the guy was having an argument with his wife and you kind of adjusted things in the environment like for instance you put um, you put the safety off his gun which was in his table or you moved a bottle so that he tripped on it and the end result of it is that in his memory he, th- he thought he'd killed his wife in this argument so he ended up committing suicide. So basically, it's about kind of messing. It's, it's, it looks like a really cool action adventure, I should say. But then also, there's that whole messing with memory aspect of it that just lifts it a little bit, makes it more interesting. See, if, if, you, could, if you could do that in a way where it wasn't just about solving the puzzle, but you, in fact, could decide how to mess with people's memory, that could be like the coolest game ever. Yeah, I think it's going oh. to be limited to like two scenarios that you can engineer that, i don't that think would it's be, open-ended it would surprise awesome. me if any developer did anything else not that i'm <laughs> cynical um yeah that's pretty cool i might have to might have to think about you know 
borrowing that idea. Hmm. <laughs> it looks good. I yeah. mean, it's basically this this uh, French studio called Don't Nod who are making it. Well, it's, okay, a French studio, of course. Yeah. There's all that creativity coming out of French studios. What's and there's all this, there? like, I mean, all this sort of, like, uh, French, you know, late 19th century French philosophy about hierarchy and about experience and about, like, the, and even the kind of Bakhtin style, like, chronotope sort of time and and subjectivity. Jeez, you're making me it's want to leave that. and go play the game now. We <laughs> go back to Gamescom. Uh, it's probably going to end up as an action game, mostly. But then there is that. I mean, it's, it's, it's encouraging. How could that end up as an action? I know game? it's encouraging when you speak Sorry, to a developer Sandra. and they and they talk about uh, <laughs> they talk about all this French philosophy and stuff, and you're like, well, there's definitely an interesting bedrock of, of ideas behind this game, and I, I, I hope that it kind of shows through. That was that was the most impressive thing for me, mostly because it was actually new. Yeah. One of the most disappointing things about E3 this year was just. No new games, really. And then Sony came out and were like, right, you guys like guns and explosions and blood. We've got a game about puppets, a papercraft platformer, yeah. a book for kids that you can interact with in magical ways. And then Capcom were like, we've got a sci-fi action adventure where you can mess with memories. And it was just a lot cooler than there, we've there, got a game where you can stab people in the neck. There was a whole lot less uh, neck stabbing compared to E3. And bows and, <laughs> and arrows, it was like, hang on a minute, what's going on here? There would have to be less. Yeah. I was just going back to the point you were making, obviously, action games are rife these days. Like in, during the development process, and specifically your development process, like at, at what point do you think, okay, right, I've got to hit the biggest market possible, and you, know, you get the marketing aspect, or is it purely for you, I just want to make the game, best game possible? Uh, you know, I, I tell everybody I work with, I make the games I want to make, and I make them the way I want to, and if you don't want that, tell me before we start so we can stay friends. Uh, gotcha. I, uh, you know, I've always, I've always approached uh, cre- creativity and game development specifically as an exercise in selling one more copy than I need to to get somebody to fund my next one. Uh, I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I, I've worked on 23 games now, I think. I, I, I've kind of lost count. I think it's 23 games. And um, uh, every one of them has just been a game I wanted to make. I've never been told to make a game or how to make a game. People have tried, right? certainly. Um, but uh, no, I just I don't think about that much. I mean, I, no, that's that's I don't want to be disingenuous. I mean, I do yeah. I do obviously think you know any anybody who says I want to reach the smallest possible audience with my work <laughs> is really kind of kind of a boob, right? So you know, I I, I want to reach the biggest possible audience I can, but yeah. I, I want to reach that audience with a specific kind of game that I think is interesting and important and fun to make and fun to play. And so I don't think too much about about audience. Do you think there's something there? Um, because you've been in the industry for for a long time, I think I think some people come in and they've basically been taught how to make games at university, and and uh, during you know at, in training they've been taught how to make games and therefore they're not very keen on on subverting the the method. Well, I think I think you know we've we've kind of gone through two and a half phases of game development. I mean, the first the the first phase was we're all D and D nerds, you know, and so we're all trying to recreate the experience we had the first time we played D and D. That would be me. You know, and then there's a, there's sort of a second generation of people who who've started studying. It's only in the last like ten years that you could you could study game development. Yeah, exactly. And and then I think now there's sort of not an offshoot of that. Maybe it's an offshoot of that. I don't know. But there's a there's a, a, a rising group of of people who are sort of identified as the indie scene. You know, who are who are just kind of thinking. Wow, all those D and D clones and and you know games made by rote are sort of boring. I should do something completely different. So I think you're starting to see a lot more people subvert things. Mm. Uh, but certainly, that sort of second generation, if I've noticed anything, uh, it's that they 
they think it's enough that like they come in an interview like and say, well, I, I studied at, you know, University X or College Y and I play games all the time. And my first question is, well, what else do you do? Because if all you all you bring is I've played games all my life, you're just going to make games like the ones you've already played, which is not very interesting. So yeah. I think I think there's a there's a, a change coming. You know, yeah, certainly. Yeah. That happens with journalists as well, actually, to be honest. You know, a lot of people who want to be games journalists just are like, well, I play loads of games. I've played games all my life. And I think in order to be to bring something new to, to writing about games as well as making them, you have to actually be into other stuff. Like, it really helps if you're into books or film or, I don't know, travel or something else that you've got a passion for because it sure. gives you a slightly more interesting point of view, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the other highlights of the show, and I think you touched on it, was obviously um, Tearaway, which is Media Molecule's new game. Now, I didn't actually get to see it, unfortunately, because you were absolutely singing its praises when you saw it. Yeah, I thought it was lovely. Um, did you see Tearaway? No, I, you know, like I said, I did a quick run. You know, a quick run took me about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Tearaway is a, it's a Vita game, yeah. and uh, you know, it's Media Molecule who did Little Big Planet, obviously, and it's um, the same sort of homemade craft aesthetic, but basically the world's made of paper. <sighs> And it's so lovely. It's so lovely. I was and working on a game like that. Really? Yeah. When? Uh, a couple of years ago. Little uh, little little game about paper stuff, which I probably shouldn't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, ideas have a way of coming back. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it's great. The, the thing, the, the there's lots of kind of gimmicky, nice things about it as well. Like um, using the Vita back touch screen, you can sort of um, poke your fingers through the paper of the world and sort of mess with it, fold it, rip it, tear it about, and stuff. And it's it's just very lovely. It, yeah. it gave you the same kind of feeling of oh, video games are okay as when you saw Little Big Planet for the first time. Because I think Little Big Planet was announced. Around, it, there was a similar feeling around the industry of, uh, we've seen all this before when Little Big Planet kind of arrived. Uh, I think E3, the first yeah. trailer for that, was the same kind of. It's about creativity and making things, and it's it's it's, it's kind of nicer. And Tearaway had the same effect on me because, um, yeah, I was I was a little bit I was a little bit bored after E3 to be honest. So seeing like the first day of e, the first day of Gamescom was like Tearaway, Puppeteer, yeah, and Remember Me and a few other things that were that were new. It's, yeah. it's, it's funny. So many people seem seem so. I mean, it's not just now, but but, but since since I got into gaming, everybody's always saying, "Oh, gaming is is dead," or "Gaming is dying," or All the "Gaming time. is boring." It's always been that way. It's always yeah. been chaos, and it's always been a lot of me too product and sequels and big budget. I mean, it's that's it's always been that way. And yeah. and there's all, there's always this one little pocket or these hundred little pockets of crazy creativity, you know. And I I, I actually think we're we're kind of in a golden age. It's very weird, you yeah. know, if you think about it. There, yeah, there are a lot of first-person shooters and blah blah blah, you know. But you know, and a lot of is it is it brown world this year or you know green world or gray, <laughs> gray. world? What is what is what does everybody consider to be the hip, edgy? We're going to attract you know mature folks to games look. Uh, but but you know, then you get something like like you know, Media Molecule, a company like that comes along and just d- changes things. You get you get Mojang coming along and changing the world from out of nowhere. You yeah, know? It you is, get it John is Blow doing Braid. I mean, yeah, there's all sorts of journey. I mean, everything that Genova Chen touches turns into a little poem. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it's, uh, we, the games have never been as various as they are now. I think that's exactly. The, I think the only kind of fatigue comes from the same. I mean, the fatigue's been there for years, hasn't it? It's, it's the same area, the same kind of AAA <laughs> area of gaming where it often feels like there's nothing going on. But I mean, now there's just such a wide variety of people making games, and also mobile gaming is, is I'm told, a brilliant 
Uh, I don't play many mobile games because I don't have any Apple devices and nobody will make good Android games. <laughs> You're the one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm that one person left. Yeah. But yeah, that that's also just a great kind of hotbed of, of creativity and new ideas coming out as well. So you are right. It's it's a it's a the fatigue is is eternal. Everybody, well, I, everybody's yeah. always you know, been bored. So many people ask me, even at the show, well, why are you making why are you making Mickey Mouse games? You know, when are you going to make another game like Deus Ex or, or or you know System Shock or an Ultima game? Mm. And and uh, you know, there there are a couple of answers to that. One is I never stopped making games like Deus Ex. I mean, Disney Epic Mickey 2 has as much depth of, of choice and consequences as Deus Ex did, and then some, right? If people can get past the fact they're playing a, a mouse and a rabbit yeah. <laughs> and not a guy who wears, you know, sunglasses at night and wears a trench coat in the middle of summer, summer I mean, they'll they'll find plenty of gameplay that's familiar, but, but I, it's just so boring doing the same stuff over and over again. I don't know how people do it. You know, I've, I've made cyberpunk science fiction games and I've made fantasy epics and you know it was just so nice to to come to a place like Disney that that encouraged thinking differently you know and now it's like holy cow I mean I'm I'm totally jazzed about the possibility and by the way don't assume you know anything about what I'm doing in the future but just about what I'm about to say but uh you know the mobile stuff is really fascinating I mean how do we take how do we take the kind of stuff that 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 I do for a living all that character-driven, story-driven, player-driven experience, you know, designed to be played over a big period of time. How do I translate that to a, a tablet or a, a phone that doesn't have joysticks or buttons and where people are used to playing for the five minutes they have online waiting for a coffee somewhere? You know, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. There's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of fun stuff to play with out there. It is, because I've started using, well, probably either my iPad or my iPhone more than I do either a DS or a Vita or... or um, purely because well that same thing my train journey is half an hour long uh, and then it's the little bits between and again having a daughter I don't have an awful lot of time to play at home so but yeah, but it's but it's the games that are designed specifically for that platform that really appeal to me rather than it's a game that you've seen somewhere else and they've tried to squeeze it in because that yeah. stuff just doesn't yeah. work I'm glad you're thinking about this because I'm still waiting for the mobile game that makes me think this is for me because I, 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 t- I generally like longer form stuff yeah. so I mean I, I, although you know it's it's very enjoyable playing game dev story forever <laughs> which I've done I still I'm still waiting for that you know that narrative game that the, the one that that's like the games I like on consoles to be on to well be on I, I am too and the, the fact that I have no idea how to do it is exactly why I want to try it you yeah. know it's kind of cool looking back over your career what would you say are your personal highlights oh god uh <laughs> You know, I look. The, my my first job was kind of a highlight. I mean, when Steve Jackson offered me a a minimum wage job, I mean, it was just it was he made paid me nothing, and I, and I love him <laughs> to death. You know, uh, you know, getting getting my first job, making that that leap from from uh, amateur to well, hear the air quotes again, professional. Uh, he gave me an education, and then you know, getting to getting to work at, at TSR, the you know, on, on Dungeons and Dragons stuff. I mean, if if you ever. You ever played second edition Dungeons and Dragons? I mean, I was intimately involved in the creation of the rule set for that. And, um, you know, working on Toon, the cartoon role-playing game, was was pretty big for me. Uh, getting a job at, at, uh, at Origin and working on Ultima 6 with Richard Garriott, that was, that was kind of my grad school in, in uh, game development. Uh, Deus Ex is obviously a high point because it was the only time anyone's ever said, make the game of your dreams. You will get no interference. We will leave you completely alone. Do whatever you want. And we'll give you three times the marketing budget you've ever had. Which ended, I mean, it was nothing. But, you know, but just the opportunity to just just to 
do exactly what you want, that never happens. I and mean, when you're risking someone else's many millions of dollars, most people aren't crazy enough to, to just let a, a creative person loose. And, and they, I mean, IDOS and, uh, and Ionstorm did that. You know, it's, it's, it's weird. Like, the, the daunting, this is the first time anyone's used the word daunting. Usually it's scared. Were you scared? Or did you feel pressure? And usually it's around did you around Mickey Mouse games, which was another high point for me, by the way. Um, you know, we're just making video games, and and obviously, you know, I love video games, and I think, I, I think truly that 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 we are the art form of the twenty first century. I think I think we are to this century what what movies and maybe television were to to the last one. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, it's not like we're curing cancer. It's not like, you know, world peace is at stake if a game loses money. I mean, so someone loses some money, big deal, you know? I mean, we the price of failure is so low. I mean, go for it. That's why I will never understand to my dying day people who play it safe. It's like, let's execute well on well-understood problems. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. Uh, you know, there has to be at least one thing in every game that I have no idea how to do, and no one on my team knows how to do it. It's why, why bother doing it, you know? I mean, like, we had no idea if we were going to be able to pull off two-player co-op and uh and uh, uh you know like oswald the lucky rabbit ai in the context of a story-based game without having to design specific levels for it we had no idea how that was going to work you know i mean you, you just do it you take the, the leap off the cliff exactly exactly if there isn't one thing in in a game that i literally have no idea how to do i'm not even going to bother making the game that's that's part of my process i mean i just have that is one of the the questions i ask myself does that apply when you play games as well like are you always looking for something you haven't seen before i don't go actively looking for it but um you know i play a lot of games a very little <laughs> uh i i play i try to play as many games as possible until i get bored uh, or I feel like I've learned right or wrong. I feel like I've learned everything I'm going to learn from it. Sometimes that's in five minutes. In some games. Yeah, most most games I, I get about two hours in and then I stop. I mean, I finish a couple of games a year at most, and and those are the ones that just really nail me. You know. Warren, you touched upon the fact that you think video games are very much a 21st century art form. Now, as you said, the 20th century probably belonged to movies and and television. Do you think in an alternate universe there's a Warren Spector? Pumping out cartoons, pumping out movies, TV shows. Well, I, I hope that Warren Spector exists in the 21st century, actually, in this universe. Uh, you know, I, I, I love making games. Uh, it, it's what I do. Uh, but uh, I have to admit, I would like to try my hand at, at producing a movie. I don't need to direct. I just I like working through other people and and, uh, you know, getting them to, uh, to sort of express something together and everything with me getting one more vote than everybody else. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I want to design a theme park ride. I would love to try taking the stuff we do virtually and moving it into the real world and giving people a, a real world experience. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if I'd been born in, you know, 1917 or something, uh, yeah, I'd be I'd absolutely be making movies because there's something so well, I mean, first of all, I just love movies, of course. But, uh, you know, how often do you get the chance to create a new art form and and you know, when the early filmmakers got their start, that's what they were doing. They were taking something that didn't exist and figuring out what it was and developing it and, and, and turning it into something special. And uh, that's the opportunity we've had. Some of us who got involved in this, you know, in video games 30 years ago, um, nobody knew what they were doing. We were making it up as we went along. Sure. And to go from where we were then, where it was all beeps and boops and you know, I mean, we were all excited that we had four colors to play with, you know? <laughs> 
uh, to where we are now. I mean, you don't get that opportunity but once or twice a century. So uh, I'm, I'm quite happy where I am now, but uh, uh, you know, I certainly hope I get a chance to make to make a, a theme park ride. I would love to actually be the showrunner on a TV show too, and, uh, and and make some movies. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons to be working for Disney, after all, right? Yeah, it's sure. Where the biggest media company on the planet might offer some opportunities. Uh, he said, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and you've always you've always been a Disney fan. Yeah, I, I I was a Disney fan literally from the day I was born. I mean, my dad my dad bought himself a car the day I was born to celebrate, and he bought me a Pluto plush toy. Wow. Didn't buy you the cars, but you know it's funny because when when I was a kid, I thought he got the better part of the deal, but that car is scrapped somewhere now, and my Pluto plush toy is still at my office. And, you still uh, have the same one? Absolutely. I'll show you the pictures. <laughs> Brilliant. I had my first mouse ears. I mean, I've got I've got it all. I got my first mouse ears. Well, someone put my someone. I assume it was my mom. My mom put mouse ears on me when I was nine months old, and I have the pictures to prove that too. Cool. And uh, the first mouse ears I got that have my name embroidered on them, uh, I was about five, and wow. still still got those two. My daughter, she's uh, three next month. She's just got her first pair of mouse ears. Oh, uh, that, that's the perfect age. There you go. There you go. <laughs> So, touching on a theme park, what would a Warren Spector theme park look like? Uh, well, I don't know what the park would look like. I don't think quite that grandiosely, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I am such a huge Disneyland fan. I, you know, I mean, that's partly why Wasteland is, is sort of designed around a, a Disneyland uh, layout, right? Um, and, and so my games at this point are, are kind of me sort of trying ideas out the the big thing i would want to do would be to bring a level of interactivity to to a park attraction i mean they're doing some some really interesting stuff now over at imagineering um yeah. i've already seen uh rides that sort of vary the route based on i, I guess a random die roll honestly i don't even know uh but rides don't always play out the same now and they're introducing right? interactivity in things like toy story mania and uh you know i i, I think that's a good start but there are ways to bring the audience into the experience yeah. much, much more directly and, and let them determine what kind of experience they have. Yeah. Uh, and and I'd, I'd love to take a stab at that. But again, you know, half the reason I, I do anything is because I have no idea what I would do or how I would do it. I just I just want the opportunity to sit down and and, and like figure it out. Yeah. You know? You're a man that enjoys learning, aren't you? Uh, I'm a man who gets bored really, really easily. <laughs> uh, you know, that's I have the attention span of a gnat. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the, the fact that, that video games are still this crazy, you know, what the heck are we sort of medium is, is perfect for, for me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a serial dilettante. Once I think I know enough about something, I, mastery, who cares? I'm just on to the next thing I don't understand, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bored easily. That's me. Yeah. If we ever got to the point where video games were like predictable, I think a lot of people would suddenly get bored and move on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, but it, you know, it, it's even worse for me. It's like I, I, everybody at the office will tell you. I mean, during production, I disappear. I mean, I uh, during the the initial conceptual phases of a project when we're figuring out what it is and you know we're prototyping ideas to see what works and what doesn't. I mean, I love that. And I love the end phase where you have a game that's fully playable and not much fun and you turn it into something, well, you hope, magical, you know, if you have enough time. There's that whole middle phase where all you're doing is like ones and zeros and 
blue pixels and green pixels. And it's like, thank God there are people who live for that. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I know you, you have, Hey, you have, if you're going to succeed at anything in life, you have to figure out what, what your strengths and weaknesses are. And weakness number one for me is, is easy boredom. I mean, I've already played the game in my head by the time we get done with pre-production. And, mm. you know, after that, it's all downhill. It's like, how far, how close can we get to, to that perfect game you, you see in your head? And so, I always surround myself with people who live for production. Yeah, a lot of us, I think, would would probably like bail if if when when games become a solved problem in the way yeah, that like yeah, movies. I mean, the, the, right. the position of the sprocket holes, how you record sound, you know, none, none of that stuff has has changed pretty much in a hundred years. I mean, when we get to that point, well, I'm going to be dead. But you know, when we get to that point, I think you're going to see a lot of people looking for what's the thing that replaces video yeah. games. Yeah, yeah, it's the kind yeah. of the the forefront, really. Yeah. yeah. Because there's always got to be a new medium, hasn't there? Well, you know, so far. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we're it. Yes, maybe yeah. we're the, the last one. That would, be, that would be scary. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the thought of games... Because um, at the moment, like, I think a lot of people who play games and who keep playing games as adults, they kind of like that it's not quite there yet. That's, that's the whole tension, the whole excitement of the thing that it's not quite there. And they still can't say to anybody, I work in video games, and for everyone to go, oh, really cool. Like, there's still people who go, really? Right? What? Yeah, that, Why? That, that, number is, that number is going down yeah. all the time. I, I mean, yeah. I, I spent years as the black sheep of my family, you know, and, and now not so much, right? I mean, we, we are, we're at a point where it's very hard to find someone who doesn't play games. Yeah. You know, it's very, very hard. They, they may not play what, what we consider to be core games. But, you know, if, if you look at, by the way, I'm not about to be a sexist jerk. I mean, it is demonstrably true that on Facebook, if you're, I mean, the, the people spending money on Facebook are, are women over the age of 35, typically, you know. And if you look at who's playing, um, you know, on, on mobile phones, it's, oh, wait, everybody. Um, and, and, you know, I think in the core gaming community, there's still sort of a sadly male-dominated, you know, teen to early 20s-ish thing going on, but it's all changing. I mean, is everybody changing. is a gamer now. Yeah. Uh, and and I find that pretty darn exciting. And again, it was a driving force behind everything we're trying to do in Disney Epic Mickey. You know, try to make a game that that isn't just appealing to a broad audience by being sort of generic, but appealing to a broad audience in the same way that that you know Disney's cartoons did or or, or the Looney Tunes did yeah. or or a lot of movies do, or Pixar films, you know. Sure. No one says Pixar, you know, like the uh, Up was only for teen girls. <laughs> Yeah. You know, no one says that, that Snow White was only for, you know, 14-year-old boys. I mean, why can't a, a game aspire to that? So mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to do. That's the, the, the beauty of working for Disney is they really encourage that. It's not about, like, you know, do you think, shooters and stuff. Do you think the medium of delivery has anything to do with it? Like, you, you know, when, when you talk about uh, things like maybe Farmville or, or something like that. It's there, it's on a PC or it's on your, your on your tablet or whatever. Do you think there is a, still an issue where, where people enjoy playing games but they shy away from playing games on a games console? Uh, well, I think anytime you put a, up a barrier to entry, you're going to, you know, your audience is going to get smaller, right? You know, if, if you have to purchase a multi-hundred dollar device in order to access a limited selection of games uh, and you have to pay... Sixty dollars for the privilege, uh, uh, you know. For, frankly, sixty dollars for the privilege of finding out if it's worth sixty dollars. Yeesh, you know. <laughs> or uh, let me pull out the supercomputer I carry in my pocket at all times and try this thing for free or ninety nine cents. I mean, of course, you're gonna you're gonna limit your audience, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and and 
removing barriers to entry is a good thing. The 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 the, the reason I'm I'm so this, again this is just personal, right? Don't 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 I'm not speaking for Disney or anything else right now, but the, for me like that the whole tablet thing and 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 iPhones and and Android phones, it's so exciting because everybody, I mean billions of people can access your work. Uh, that's the that's, dream, isn't it? It, well, it, it's it's certainly nice, you know. <laughs> um, and if we can just solve two or three problems that are really hairy, hairy problems, don't don't make any mistake. But if we can figure out how to get rid of virtual joysticks, which we all know suck, and yeah. you know virtual buttons, which we all know suck, and if we can figure out how to how to communicate a story in five minute chunks, I mean, somebody's going to rule the world, and I uh, of gaming. And uh, I would really love it if it was me and Disney. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm noticing with uh, my mum, my, my for instance, I bought her brain training on the DS mm-hmm. into about 2006, seven, And uh, the thing is, she, she played it a lot and she loved it. But then she was like, she, want, she wanted a new game. And she went and bought a new 3DS. What? Because she didn't, it was a DS, sorry, at the time. Um, but yeah, she, she, she didn't realise that the cartridges were the games. So she she was like, oh, I've been, you know, I can't really afford a new game. So she went and bought a literal new DS and a copy of Nintendo. Wow. So I was like, no, mum, there are. Oh. <laughs> but even that, like, it's, it's a basic thing that it is quite difficult to grasp, really, I guess. Sure. If you've literally never done it before. Yeah, yeah. If it's the first time you've picked it. I mean, I guess you gave it to her with the game totally, in it. I and just it's gave like, it yeah, so you, you just wouldn't expect anything else, would you? Yeah. Yeah. It's like game and watches. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we have a bunch of questions from our uh, um, audience who uh, we asked them if they've got any questions for you and uh, Lucas Eldridge is up first and he says Epic Mickey is such a great game as it really brought Mickey into current gen consoles but do you think there's another game like it that could be applied to other Disney characters? So he was thinking kind of Pluto but in the style of Akami. Uh, I absolutely think there are possibilities for the other characters. I mean, I, I am wearing my Uncle Scrooge socks even as we speak. Uh, and I, I really would love to make, uh, you know, a, a, an epic Donald game. You know, I, I think a, a duck game would be spectacular. I've got plenty of ideas about how to, how to bring Goofy into the uh, 21st century gaming world. Uh, you know, Fantasia seems like an obvious thing to yeah. go for. Um, there, to, to that question specifically, to that, that listener, uh, there, there was in fact a scenario in the first game involving a character I called Dark Pluto. <laughs> and, uh, I, I intend to bring him back someday. Uh, that'll be fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's just, it's a question of, uh, timing and getting, getting, uh, Disney on board and, and all that. Can I ask you a question that just before we move on to the next one, you might not be able to answer. What do you think of Kingdom Hearts? Um, uh, well, I, I think they've been hugely successful, the Kingdom Hearts games, and they uh, they sort of cleared the way for uh, Disney Epic Mickey in a very nice way. And mm. then before Kingdom Hearts, uh, I think there was a little trepidation on Disney's part about uh, crossing the streams. Yeah, you quite. Know? And uh, Kingdom Hearts was the first game that actually brought characters from different Disney universes together, uh, and uh, and that made it a lot easier for us. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a... I make a different kind of game than that. And so I'm just glad that uh, gamers have room in their hearts uh, for, uh, for a, a traditional Japanese-style square RPG uh, adventure and for, uh, I don't know, what, whatever you call the stuff that I do, you know, immersive simulation or Playstyle Matters games or whatever. So I think, I think they're complementary, and I, 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 
expect we'll see both of them going on long into the future. Yeah, it's really interesting when you look at who plays Kingdom Hearts because it's you know it's quite a hardcore JRPG really. Yeah. Played yeah. by so many more women than most hardcore JRPGs. I mean, actually, to be honest, Final Fantasy's always had a huge female audience anyway, but Kingdom Hearts has an even bigger one. It's, it's just the kind of the appeal of the characters. So it just shows that it's not the gameplay that puts people off. It's just the kind of the pitch, the way it's pitched. Well, there, there's some of that, but, you know, interestingly, um, the you know, from, from the time I started working on Ultima games up through, uh, you know, I worked briefly on the first Thief game and, and a lot on the third one, uh, and then on Deus Ex, and, and, and Disney Epic Mickey now, uh, a lot more women actually play uh, the the games that I've worked on at, at Origin and and Looking Glass and Ion Storm and Junction Point uh, than than I think anybody expected. It's been a nice sort of side benefit if if you if you let players decide how to interact with problems in your world. Uh, there there are potential solutions that I guess women find appealing. I don't know. It's been it's been really really nice that uh, I've always had a, a pretty large female audience. Mm. So it's partly the gameplay. I think it is. I think that's what it is. I think basically games that, well, I think the only type of game that there's actually a genuine case for saying women don't play them very much is military shooters. In my experience, women play pretty much everything else. Yeah, no, that's true. Just as that's much as, as guys do. But sorry, getting off track. So I should probably say the next reader question. The next reader question is from Alex Corey, who says, do you feel System Shock could be brought back as, as System Shock in some kind of new version similar to what Syndicate did, but not rubbish? His words. <laughs> yes, <laughs> without, without commenting on the quality of another developer's games. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly think there's an opportunity there. Uh, actually, to be, to be honest, the one that I've always sort of been surprised about is that no one's updated Underworld, Ultima Underworld. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a pathetic statement on on the state of of you know game role, modern role playing games. But if you put modern graphics and a modern interface on Underworld, it would kind of still be the state of the art in role playing after what twenty years. Anyway, um, okay, end of commentary. Um, unfortunately, uh, Electronic Arts owns the rights to Underworld and System Shock and. Hmm. You know all those games I worked on back then, so uh, I don't have any say in that. But I'd I'd play it. I think EA is one of the only develop. I might be wrong here, Alex. Are they one of the only developers that's not really gone in for the whole HD remakes thing, as much as everyone else? I can't think of any EA HD yeah, remakes. No, certainly I, I can't think of any that springs to mind. Yeah. Like, it's, it's nutty. I don't know why they yeah. wouldn't. Do, I don't know why everybody wouldn't do that. It's not. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, Free I guess money, it's exploitation, but it's also giving people the opportunity to experience something yeah. wonderful from the past. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Nintendo have essentially been doing this. Yeah, since the '90s, you know, and then, uh, but Capcom and Konami and other people are very good at HD re- and Sony. Yeah, the Metal, yeah, the Metal Gear here. Solid uh, HD remakes are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's again, a terrific I would never idea. Have played those games again. It's, yeah, well, it's crazy to think, isn't it? You could you could go to your local video store and take out a ten-year-old movie and watch it at home, whether or not you've on on DVD, on Blu-ray, or whatever. But you can't necessarily take a 10 year old video game home and play it well you have to be careful what you wish for too because uh <laughs> you know i was just down in australia last month where uh, the the australian center for the moving image has a, a show on called game masters and if any of your listeners are in australia it's a terrific show uh they they picked a i don't know how many just a bunch of developers and and did a real museum exhibit dedicated to their work and i, I was honored to be one of them and they they actually got underworld one system shock uh, Deus Ex and of course Disney Epic Mickey running 
And before the show opened, I had to go make sure that everything was running okay and everything. And and I I tried to play Underworld and System Shock, and I had I had a horrifying "What was I thinking?" moment. <laughs> you know? Like, oh my god, we thought it was a good idea to use every key on the keyboard. Oh my gosh, how do you reload? How do I? I've I've gotten myself stuck in a corner, looking down, leaning at an angle. How do I stand up? Uh, yeah. I mean, so you have to be careful with it. That's why I said updated graphics, updated user interface. Yeah. <laughs> oh I think System God. Shock 2 was, was a, I, I played that in 2004, and that was a bit of a challenge then. Yeah. To get, once yeah. you're into it, it's fine, but it's just the kind of, ah, the too many buttons. Well, also, back in the day, man, we, we did so many crazy things about memories. I mean, you know, like... Uh, Operating systems were not designed to work with games, and you know memory allocation was crazy and everything. We we wrote our own <laughs> stuff. I was talking to, to Doug Church, who was the project director on Underworld One and, and, and System Shock, and we, were, we we this was a couple of years ago now. But we had both been trying to get System Shock running again, and f- both of us failed. We could not do it. <laughs> I mean, they got some hacker dude or something to get it running down in Australia. That's the only explanation I can think of. <laughs> you had to go in there and edit like your auto exec. Oh God, auto exec yeah. nonsense to yeah. free up memory. I mean. No wonder there was a restricted audience yep, for certain true, yeah. games. For yeah, because sure. you had, what was it, you had 640, was it 640K or 640 meg on a PC? And then anything above that was like, you really had to do all sorts of weird twists We were thrilled tricks. to have 640K. I'm not kidding. <laughs> when, we, when we got 16 colors, it was rejoicing time. <laughs> Which EGA, kind of, wow! Yeah. You basically had to like rig it somewhere, somehow, didn't you? To make yeah. things to yeah. make things even. We, play. At Origin, we created something called Voodoo Memory, which which faked the the PC into thinking it had a lot more memory wow. than it did. And it, it was crazy. That kind of leads me onto the uh, this question from Joshua John Carmichael. A bit vague. What video games have you enjoyed in the past? Uh, how much time and do I we want, have? Yeah, I want you to um, list every single one. Well, well he, it does go on to say, would you call any of them masterpieces? So I guess kind of the, the important ones for you. Oh, sure. You know, there, there are plenty. Um, I, I think, okay, true confessions time. I, I am a, an obsessive list maker. I have been since I was a little kid. And so I actually spend a horrifying amount of time thinking about my 10 favorite films and uh, 10 favorite games and 10 favorite everythings. And, um, depending on how you define favorite. I mean, like you could, you could say what would be the, if you could only play one game for the rest of your life, what would it be? If this game and this game were available and you could only play one of them, which one would you choose? Uh, what are, what are the five most influential games? What, there there are so many different ways to answer this. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll give you a, a, a basic non-answer. (laughs) <laughs> um, if, if I were going to a desert island and I could only take one game with me for the rest of time, it would be Tetris. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, think about it. I mean, what other game that, that was made in the 80s is still worth playing today? And, and which has appeared on every single platform ever conceived by the mind of gaming man? Okay? It's Tetris. And it's different every time you play. It is a, every, you are guaranteed to have a unique experience when you play. So you can never get bored. Well, it's hard to get bored. So Tetris is, is that game. The game that gave me the most pleasure the first time I played it was Legend of Zelda Link to the Past on the SNES, though I have played it every year on every platform it comes out on. Um, it's just I felt like I was a hero. And like the, the I mean, Mr. Miyamoto just sort of came up with the perfect balance of challenge and puzzles and 
action and I mean it was that's it's like the perfect story game okay um, the games that influenced me the most I can't give you one uh, but I, I think I was most influenced by uh, Ultima 4 uh, which showed me that games could be more than just killing monsters and grabbing treasure I mean that was the first game that that had like a, a system of ethics built into its story and its character development and everything you did was filtered through this uh, this is going to this is going to compromise your soul, dude. Are you sure you want to do it? You know, uh, and uh, a game called Star Raiders, uh, which I played first on the Atari 800, uh, which was basically you in a starfighter, and it was the first time I ever felt uh, transported. I mean, it was it wasn't like Luke Skywalker piloting, you know, a, a starship. It was me sure. saving the world from from alien invasion. So. Uh, some combination of those. You know, the game that I've worked on that I'm most proud of is either uh, Disney Epic Mickey or, or Deus Ex, one of those, for, for different reasons, which I could go into at great length if you want. Um, I don't know. That's a that's a pretty good list. It's a pretty good list. Diablo is the, the last game that, that, that I literally just started playing one night and didn't stop playing until 24 hours later. Wow. wow. Uh, that just, <laughs> I completely lost track of time, food, hygiene, you name it. <laughs> <laughs> You ever play The Sims? Uh, I did. It's you know I've I've, I've talked to to Will Wright about about this. There, there's a he is the ultimate sandbox game developer, and I I just need more story. I need more player control. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you know, I mean, I I I, I played real time strategy games, and I certainly played The Sims. Um, I'm just not into that much freeform stuff. I I like stories, and there isn't enough story in yeah, The Sims for me personally. Emergent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Christopher Bolton asks on on the topic of uh, Deus Ex. Did you play uh, Human Revolution, and how do you think it compared to your vision of the Deus Ex world? Yeah, I, I played Human Revolution. I mean, I, I, you know, I finish. It really, typically, it's two games a year that I finish. This year, the, last year, sorry, it was uh, uh, Heavy Rain and uh, Human Revolution. So clearly, I only finish games that have HR and, in their initials. Just <laughs> <laughs> weird. Um, Okay. Anyway, I'm back. Um, uh, yeah, you know, and I, I talked to the guys on the team off and on while they were working on it. Don't tell Disney. Oh wait, I guess I just told Disney, didn't I? Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it's interesting because uh, just cutting to the chase, I loved it. Okay. Uh, if you ask my wife while I was playing it how I felt about it, she would have said I hated it. Uh, because I was screaming at the television the entire time, which is it's kind of what I do. Okay, so it's not really unusual, but the the team made just a handful of design decisions that I would never have made. I mean, oh my god, it's like why did you do this? But at the end of the game, when I sort of sat back and reflected, I said, "Wow, they made completely different design decisions than I would have, but they got to exactly the same place." I had a Deus Ex experience. It sounded like Deus Ex. It felt felt like Deus Ex. It made me think about myself as a person and the real world the way Deus Ex should. They they didn't just create a villain I had to defeat to save the universe. I mean, it just it felt like Deus Ex. And so I'm I'm really intrigued by that. And at, at some point someone I'm going to go to some game developers conference or something and, and do a panel with the, the human revolution team. And just to talk about how you can make radically different design decisions 
to get to the same goal. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. I don't understand it. Again, that's you know, again, I, I the, the whole point of of like doing stuff is I don't get it. Yeah. So I want to do this panel because I have no idea what I would say. It might be like two minutes. They answer one question and it's like, oh, that's how you did it. Okay, end of panel. <laughs> you know, but but I would really like to do that sometime. And what did you think of Heavy Rain? I I, I thought it was a spectacular experience. As a player, I loved it, and I would never make a game like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the the whole thing about my games, the, the games that I make, and and the ones that at the end of the day I just absolutely love and think change things, are the ones where players are in charge of the experience, not not writers, directors, developers, designers, creators, whatever. And Heavy Rain is the product of David Cage's genius. I mean, he is. If Tim, if Tim Schafer isn't the best writer in video games, maybe Sheldon Picotti. Maybe He's an maybe, excellent writer, Sheldon Picotti. Yeah, Sheldon, Sheldon was, is an astonishing writer. Uh, but, I mean, if, if one of those guys isn't, uh, maybe Brian, my, my current writer. Uh, but, but David Cage is a genius writer. And what he did was he wrote the, mo- the world's most amazing choose-your-own-adventure book yeah. and then attached amazing graphics to it. But I, I, I actually, I'd like to talk. To, I've never actually talked to, to David either. Uh, I'd like to talk to him because I'm pretty sure that the that it literally. I mean, he flowcharts five movie scripts, jams them together, and somehow makes it work. I mean, yeah. it's like a super choose your own adventure book. Like, I, I mean, I, I wrote a choose your own adventure. I wrote a bunch of them back in the '80s. You know, yeah. um, I, but I'm pretty certain that nothing surprising can happen in that game. Yeah, things that will surprise the player. But I don't believe that players can ever do anything that surprises David. Yeah. And I, I, I just won't even ship again. That's an overstatement. I know I've succeeded in what I want to do personally as a game developer when someone figures out how to do something that everybody on the team, th- team thought was impossible. You know, I mean, you, you, in, in Disney Epic Mickey, in the first game, there's a point where you you can either rescue a trapped gremlin and make a friend who will help you later or get a treasure that will make you more powerful wealthier and more powerful on an individual basis it's not like one's right or wrong it's just which one do you think is most important as guy who must save the world and you could only do one of them until a player figured out how to get both and everybody on the team just went that's not possible and but it was wow you know and in Deus Ex it happened all the time mm-hmm. I mean pe- people figured out how to do things that that no one on the team knew would work yeah and and it's I I'm not going to tell you how but it's already I've seen it happen on Disney Epic Mickey too so we can ship that game you know <laughs> um, but I think that's the magic when when games are about players being creative and players showing how smart they are and not how smart a writer is yeah you know so again it's like I'm a, I'm a total hypocrite because i loved heavy rain but i think ultimately the future lies somewhere else they're not mutually you know? exclusive though are they? oh no no, like, no absolutely not always absolutely been room not. for directed experiences and player directed experiences and emergent and absolutely and scripted and so on yeah I, I i get painted so many i mean i i like i like I'm, i like overstating things to make points you know <laughs> i'm a serial exaggerator and and so I'm, I often get painted as the guy who says those that kind of game sucks or people shouldn't do that. And I don't mean that at all. I mean, make the games you want to make. And, and I mean, I'll play whatever whatever David Cage comes out with next. I'm playing man. Oh, man. You know, I, I, but 
again, just as a developer, I, I want to take games in a slightly different direction. They yeah. seem superficially similar, but but not so much. Yeah. There was a point in, in you know, Dishonored, um, the guys... I am vaguely aware of Dishonored. Oh, yeah, a little, yes. this, it's there, it's around. Those guys were saying, I, I asked them a question, like, what, what, what's the last thing that happened in playtesting that you didn't think was possible? And they said it was... They, they had so many stories about things that their playtesters had done where they, they literally had no idea that you could even do that. Like, one player had tried to do an assassination by throwing an expl- basically an explosive barrel across to a building and blowing out a window, but it was way, way too far. So they threw it, stopped time in the mid-flow, teleported out to the top like a tiny little bit on top of a lamppost, grabbed it out of the air and threw it the other, the other, um, the other like 10 metres or so through the window. And they were like, we had literally no idea you could do that. Harvey Smith and Rafael Colantonio, I mean, Harvey's, he worked for me for many, many years. Mm. And he didn't work for me. I mean, he's, he's not doing that because he learned it from me. We learned it together, mm. you know. We learned that that was the the stuff together uh yeah rafael he's, he's been a looking glass fan rafael colantonio he's been a looking glass fan forever been making games like that uh half the designer design team used to work at ion storm and origin and and junction point for a while i mean the, the, I, I cannot wait to play that game uh, for, for that very reason i mean it's exactly the kind of game that i i want to make i'm, I'm just doing it with people. mice and rabbits now <laughs> <laughs> so what what is next for warren specter uh vacation i hope uh, yeah uh you know who knows I, the the one thing that I, I think you can guarantee is is that it will be uh a game where you know play style matters just to you know tm to use the little little trademarkable phrase uh, <laughs> hey no one will read the 12 page manifesto so you got to come up with a two word expression of it um you know i i, I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet uh and and certainly everybody at the office is still working real hard focusing on getting disney epic mickey 2 the power of 2 done and uh ready to ready to market so who knows we'll see looking forward to playing it cannot wait so uh, well thank you very much for coming on the podcast it's been uh, a brilliant experience and uh very good to hear your stories behind your amazing career well thanks it's so, great being here uh yeah that's it for this week's podcast thanks to Stu and thanks to keza and of course thanks to warren and uh we'll be back next week so until then bye-bye bye-bye bye, bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.